welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, this is Maz. Before we get to the next episode with Dr. Tony Ingishon about military subcultures and their impact on behaviour, I want to say thank you to the many of you who've listened to my recent monologue published on World Refugee Day, about my own experiences of war as a child in a besieged Sarajevo. Discussing something so personal did not come easy, but I'm glad that I did, for two reasons. Firstly, I think it's only fair that those who choose to listen to the show get a better sense of my own motivations behind creating it. And secondly, sharing my own thoughts and experiences in such a public manner feels almost cathartic and even cleansing. So thank you to everyone who's taken the time to listen, and a special thanks to those who've reached out in one way or another. The fun thing I want to do before we get to my chat with Tony is to thank my two most recent Patreons. Thank you, Marcus and Marion. The former is supporting all the way from Norway, while Marion has opted to double the recommended donation of five Australian dollars. Thank you both sincerely. To know that there are people out there who not only listen to the show, but also want it to grow, warms me immensely. Okay, now let's get to my chat with Tony, which, as you'll hear, proved very insightful and enjoyable. My guest today is Tony Ingershon, who is an assistant professor of intelligence analysis at the Department of Political Science at Lund University in Sweden. His current research interests are decision-making, organizational cultures, and technological aspects related to intelligence and counterintelligence. For his PhD dissertation, Tony studied tactical decision-making in high-stress situations in several different military units conducting operations in wars ranging from World War II to the UN mission in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the early 90s. Interestingly, prior to his academic career, Tony served in all three arms of the Swedish armed forces. He joins me today to discuss organizational culture, subcultures, and their impact on group behavior. Tony, thanks very much for joining me on the Voices of War. Thank you. So uh, we briefly spoke, Tony, uh, before recording, but uh, I think you have an absolutely amazing background, uh, and I can't go past without asking uh, about your service in all three arms uh, of the Swedish uh, Armed Forces, so Army, Navy, and Air Force. Firstly, what made you join uh, the Swedish Armed Forces in the first place, and then how did you end up serving in all three arms? Uh, it, it's kind of a, a strange story, actually. A lot of most of it is is random chance more than anything else. But mm. um, back when I was uh, in my teens, I, I joined the Air Force Volunteers because I liked airplanes, and that's, that's that's that was a good way to get close to airplanes. So I <laughs> um, was in there for a few years, um, which was useful experience. Uh, and then uh, the time came for uh, for me to get drafted because we have conscription, and we also had conscription back then. Uh, so, uh, at, when I was 
doing the tests and all of these things before before the draft, uh, I uh, I applied for for the Air Force for intelligence, uh, and then I had some other ideas, maybe some backup ideas about mm-hmm. being a tanker. Uh, none of that actually worked out because I had glasses, so I couldn't be a tanker because that was you know you had to have perfect vision for that. Uh, and uh, I never actually heard back ab- about the Air Force intelligence application. So after a few of these. Uh, weird kind of turns of events. Mm-hmm. I ended up in an army explosive ordnance disposal. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it makes total yeah, sense. <laughs> yeah, they uh, apparently. I mean, it was the old conscription system. If mm. if they had a vacancy and they thought you might be a somewhat good fit, they would just put you yeah, in there you and then there. notify yeah. you. Yeah, what yeah. wasn't really a lot of a uh, choice involved. Mm. Uh, so then I went to uh, to EUD uh, and I, I became a kind of a specialist there, uh, as they were called. Uh, so we had a little bit longer service than, than regular conscripts. Uh, which, the, which is uh, how long just for, just for this, this was, this was 10 months. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you were just a, a, a private conscript in a regular position, you had 7.5 months mm-hmm. and 10 months was for squad leaders, but we right. weren't squad leaders, but we had to have some extra time just to get through the technical stuff. Of course. And then yeah. you also had 12 months and 15 months. For the other, for for more higher command positions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, but so I was in ten months, uh, and it worked out nicely for me. I mean, uh, I liked the whole. The- I liked the theoretical part. You had to learn a lot about different weapon systems and, mm-hmm. and fuses and, and explosives, and and you had to. You, you, I got to blow up stuff, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's gonna be fun. Uh, yeah, it was fun. And then uh, before I was due to get discharged, this guy shows up from the Air Force and uh, asks my my platoon commander. Uh, he says, "I want one guy to uh, to work for me in the Air Force. Can you make a recommendation?" And my platoon leader recommended me. Uh, so so the guy from the Air Force who had never met uh, just asked me, "How about coming working for me after your discharge uh, in the Air Force?" And I said, sure, I, and I don't have anything else planned, mm-hmm. so, so that sounds good. And then I ended up in the Air Force, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we had to create this new unit that didn't exist before, and the kind of, this kind of function didn't exist before. So uh, I had to uh, f- find information on air-launched munitions, missiles, bombs, uh, shells, cluster munitions, rockets, you know, mm-hmm. you name it. So I had to find this information, uh, and then I had to like assess the quality of the information, uh, and then analyze it and and kind of get into uh, what kind of what are the dangerous parts about this from a, from an EOD perspective. Mm-hmm, I should add. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why he wanted an EOD guy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, how much explosive is in this missile or this rocket? Because that's important. You know, I have to calculate the kind of blast radius mm-hmm, when you, if you mm-hmm. if you're going to blow it up. Uh, and how how did the fuses work? Are they dangerous to uh, to approach? Uh, you know, how much of the propellant charge uh, do you have to calculate mm, for, and mm, stuff mm, like that? Mm, how do you mm. d- identify this kind of thing? So I, I and then you had to, and not all not all of this information was like readily available. So you, mm. uh, especially not for foreign systems, uh, and and our EOD people being deployed all over, they might find all sorts of things. Uh, yeah. We had people in Kosovo, we had people in Bosnia, we had people in Liberia. So you know. Liberia mm. wasn't that hot in terms of air-launched munitions, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but for Kosovo, definitely. Uh, yeah. Uh, so then I had to like um, input all this information in a database, and then I had to function as kind of an advisory function, so people could call me or send pictures of whatever they had kind of debris they had found, and then I identified what kind of weapon is this, and then I could sell send them schematics and you know mm-hmm. data on 
how how much explosives and and all that and um, how to deal with it and, and yeah and, and, and you know, record, not tell them what to do but give them information mm-hmm. so that they could make an informed decision on how to how to uh, deal with this kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. that they had found mm-hmm. That's incredible, and uh, so, so so that's your air force uh, tick in the box. <laughs> yeah, then, that uh, is exactly. And then you also uh, did some time in the navy, right? <laughs> yeah, so I actually I left the air force after a few years because we had budget cuts coming in, and uh, and things were looking a bit grim, and I didn't really want to relocate. Uh, and while I was young, and I was a bit worried that I might end up being like in my thirties with skills that had no real use in the civilian sphere, and then mm. you know changing <laughs> regretting my life decisions yeah, yeah so so i decided to get out instead while i was still young enough to to you know pursue another career and i went to lund uh to to uh study peace and conflict studies originally and then i ended up in political science and then i i was only supposed to stay for three years but i ended up staying five instead <laughs> so i got a i got a double uh, bachelor's degree in peace and conflict studies and political science and a master's degree in in political science right okay yeah, and then I and then and then that that, that was right in the middle of kind of the financial crisis. It <laughs> yeah. was two thousand nine. It wasn't really the the job market wasn't looking very good. Mm, mm. But I, I landed a job in Stockholm, a uh, private sector job. Um, it was okay, but I didn't really like it that much, and I wanted to do something else. And then uh, and, and I was based uh, outside of Stockholm at that point working in Stockholm, but I was living outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, right right nearby was one of the Navy bases, and they were hiring. Uh, and I found out that they were hiring, and they wanted people with, with a background in the armed forces. Not necessarily Navy, because this was this was a position in uh, like an underground command center, so you didn't need to be a sailor or anything like that. Right. Uh, they, they just wanted people who have some background, so you don't have to train someone from scratch. You can mm. just add whatever you needed. So, yeah, uh, so they hired the me. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So they hired me. Uh, and and this weird, I mean, the collection of people was just outrageous. It was like a f- former fighter pilot, former uh, air defense <laughs> lieutenant. Uh, there was me, and it was just ra- completely random selection of people. But we got along famously. It was great. Yeah, yeah. So then said they sent me off to to training at the uh, naval, um, the, the kind of surface warfare uh, kind of school, uh, and uh, and I got trained in uh, in command uh, and control and communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, na- the naval version and radars and crypto and stuff like that. Right. Uh, well, cri- cryptography, not not not. Yeah, not cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> otherwise, uh, uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be working uh, <laughs> right oh, now. No. If you started fortunately, back then. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, that wasn't the thing back then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so then I ended up working in this underground base. Uh, we had a uh, few of us were supervisors, and then we had some conscripts, and we were mm-hmm. mostly like watching maritime traffic communicating with ships mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that uh, and then uh, while I was just starting out in this job I noticed that the, my old department here in Lund uh, was was looking for PhD uh, candidates which mm. is a, 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 an employed position here in Sweden yeah, so it comes fine, with a yeah. salary and stuff Yeah. Mm. so I, I spent all of 45 minutes writing this application which was just you know Completely uh, like stream of consciousness thing mm, it seems mm. seemed to me, but I think apparently I got some structure into it, you know, out of habit. So I just forty five minutes wrote the entire application, submitted it, and just forgot about it. Yeah. And then I was I was working uh, for the Navy, and I got this phone call and said, "Oh, we're we've, we looked at your application, and we want you to uh, come down to Lund for an interview." 
And I was like, wow. but, I, but I'm in the Navy now. Uh, things have changed. Um, so I, I actually, I declined the position. I said, no, I can't do that to my to my new commanding officer because he's just spent money and, and time training me. And I just started to become useful. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I felt like I had not, I mean, I felt like, uh, felt bad about just leaving, leaving him dry. So I said no. Uh, and a few weeks passed, I think. And then they called me back again from Lund and said, we really think you should reconsider coming uh, mm, for the interview. Wow. And, and and I had um, the guy who called me up would later become my supervisor, but of course I didn't know that at the time. At the time, he said, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he said, you you really need to do this now if you're ever going to do it because this this opportunity is not going to present itself again. So this is your one and and final chance to do this. And I was like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll talk to my my commanding officer before I say anything. And then I talked to my commanding officer, uh, and he was great guy, really great guy. He said, I can replace you. You can't replace this opportunity you should go you should take it you should go he said yeah really really great guy and i was still still grateful to him uh so i off i went and uh uh, became a phd candidate and i've been here ever since um so yeah army conscript uh air force um doing the air launched munitions thing and then navy doing uh uh, command and control and communications that that's that's my three boxes that's absolutely impressive how, how many uniforms do you have at home? <laughs> I've oh, got to ask that uh, actually, question because that's in- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, actually, I, did, I didn't. <laughs> they didn't let me keep my uniform from when I was a conscript because yeah, okay. they they get kind of recycled. Uh, yeah, and, that's uh, well. Yeah, for conscripts, that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and in the uh, in the Air Force job, uh, I didn't wear a uniform. Right. Uh, I was civilian, uh, and in the Navy job, I actually. A funny thing is, I never got around to to uh, getting my uniform out of the um, the supply depot because it was something about delays, and they were like, "Oh, right. well, what, they, they were like, well, while you're in training, just wear your civilian clothes because you're we're receiving training at a different base." And they were like, mm. oh, "It's logistically difficult if you get your uniforms from that place. You should wait until you finish your training, and then you come <laughs> back here, and then you pick up your uniforms here because paperwork, blah blah blah." But but by the time by the time everything was sorted out logistically, uh, I, I knew that I was headed to Lund, and I was like, okay, so I'm not going to pick up my uniform now, or just to return it again. Just to return it, yeah. So, yeah, they, yeah. they were like, you're in an underground command center. If you wear civilian clothes there, it's not like anyone's going to notice. So it's fine. Uh, <laughs> that strikes I have, I, me as, as as very Swedish in its pragmatism. I I, I, yeah, I really like that. I really like that. Uh, in fact, I, I will ask you that question as we as we. Uh, you know, unpack some of these uh, subjects because I think that there is something really peculiar about that, and that's the you know Swedish culture and Swedish kind of approach to problem sets uh, that, of course, cascades down as we as we'll talk about into the actual the, the culture piece of, of particular units. Um, but one one question that really springs to mind now is the the kind of conscript piece. What is the you know have and is is it still happening right now? Or in fact, I do know that it's already ha- it's still happening in Sweden, but where are they conscripted and how many uh, are conscripted, you know, from, from the general kind of uh, walk of life uh, into the Swedish armed forces? Uh, I don't have uh, up-to-date numbers right now uh, as for the situation because um, the, these numbers, they kind of shift. Yeah, so okay. back, back, back until, I mean, some, all the way through most of the 90s, I think, it was pretty universal. So most mm. males would right, serve okay. as conscripts. Yeah. Okay. And then the numbers started dropping. So by the time I was a conscript and uh, when I was drafted in, I think, early 2000s, uh, I think it's a number for my cohort in 2001, 2002, I think was something like 30%. 
mm-hmm. of the male of the male uh, uh, eligible the, 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 kind of uh, yeah exactly yeah. The, the entire uh, uh, cohort right um, but then and then we suspended uh, conscription for a few years uh, and then reinstated it so now the numbers are pretty I mean they are even lower than back when I was a conscript mm-hmm. uh, because now we also have professionals. Uh, so we have kind of a mix now between professional and enlisted people and mm. conscripts. Mm-hmm. And and they're talking about increasing the number of conscripts as we increase the number of units again. Uh, mm. So that it's kind of shifting. Uh, yeah. But I think it, it's it's a fairly small uh, percentage. Percentage, yeah. But now we have uh, gender-neutral uh, conscription. So now uh, women can join under the same kind of conditions as men. They, are, they also have to go through the draft process. So even if you're not going to get actually conscripted, you have to go through the draft process. <laughs> if you, uh, first of all, there's a kind of a, a process to see if you're eligible and if you, if you are hypothetically someone who could get conscripted. And then right. if you are, then you can go through the draft process. So you volunteer then, for yeah. conscription? It kind of. I mean, it, they still have, they still have the, the, they can still just force you if they want to. So if you yeah, have some yeah, sort yeah. of really important skills, they can just decide that you, they, you're going to get it. Yeah, yeah you're gonna serve. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. most of the time, they ha- they they prefer, I think, to to have people who are not reluctant to serve. Yeah, uh, because you yeah. don't need you only need a, a small number of people, so you might as well pick from the ones that are that want to. They want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I I was in Sweden up until so for three years up until uh, the end of uh, 2019, and this was when uh, the tides was certainly shifting uh, towards the threat uh, from the east, or of course, Russia. Um, and I think Gotland was uh, being rearmed during the time we were there. And there was the uh, the pamphlets that uh, got dropped in all of our letterboxes about uh, making sure that we mm. have three days worth of rations. Uh, that was being uh, well. That, that's that was that's a status quo for Sweden, as I understood. Uh, but it was a, a government's uh, initiative to check that people do have mm. their three day yeah. rations. Which uh, uh, for us as outsiders, like, huh? <laughs> this is uh, this is rather odd, but uh, but there's yeah. something about the the uh, and, and and I'm sure we'll get to it, the kind of trust, the social trust that exists uh, between the citizen and the state um, in Sweden. Um, so so after your stints uh, in the various mm. arms of the military, you then ended up uh, going to Lund, um, and you had a particular uh, very interesting uh, PhD uh, research, I guess, your dissertation. Uh, was about mm. organizational cultures and decision making. Uh, what mm. why these topics? What what was it about? These particular topics uh, that drew you to to uh, to take it to the PhD level. Well, I just come from from you know straight out of the the military, uh, and I had these interesting observations uh, because I had served in these different places uh, and seen these different structures, and I noticed that there's a lot of difference between. Uh, first of all, there's a difference between like the Navy and the Army and the Air Force, obviously, but there are also differences within the Army. I mm. noticed. So, I mean, even in in the company I was in, I noticed that those of us in the EOD platoon, we had a very specific kind of culture that was all of our own uh, mm-hmm. because we were doing something very specialized and and unique. And then you had people who are like in the anti-tank missile unit, and they were completely different in their mindset and the way they were thinking and, and act. And I even saw this hilariously play out during exercises. There was one one thing that really stuck with me was that 
because we were trained that you know the, you, you have these landmines and you ex- unexplode ordnance mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and all this all these dangers that are all lurking everywhere so you have to be careful with every step because you know everything can be booby trapped and so mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. So we, we were always moving very very cautiously and we had a strong preference to stay on the road or some mm-hmm. hard surface where you can where you can be sure that there's yeah. nothing hidden and and of course the the anti tank guys they wanted to hide as, mm, as soon as mm. as soon as they saw bushes or something they want to hide because that's their <laughs> yeah. natural instinct is to hide and ambush tanks. Yeah. Um, and at one point we were like, in this weird uh, combat thing was going on, you know, shots fired and no one knew what was going on in the middle of an exercise, and the UD platoon was like, kind of trying to I think take cover or move towards our vehicles as as opposed to running into cover because this is a Plain instinct, just not mm, mo- mm. run into the bushes and, and tall grass. And the anti-tank guys, uh, the anti-tank missile platoon, they were right next to us. And they, they just did the absolute opposite and ran straight towards cover uh, mm, through the bushes. Mm, mm. And there was an, uh, one of these judges was nearby who kind of decides what happens to everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he said the entire, all the, the, I think it was two squads of the anti-tank yeah. missile guys had been running. And they were like, all of you, you ran into a minefield and your yeah. legs are blown off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was like, ah. Oh, because we wouldn't do that, but of course they would do that. And now look what happened to them. And then we had to extract them. It was like this laborious process of sweeping and yeah, you know, probing. Yeah, yeah, prodding with the with medivacking a, with a bayonet. Them, and, yeah. <laughs> and we we had a, we had a great time laughing at their expense. Mm-hmm. And we took the, our our mine uh, this this tape you have to to seal off a minefield, mm-hmm. and then we would put there around their beds. And yeah, you know all this mature stuff you do when you're yeah, 18. of course, <laughs> um, soldier, soldier but, but, stuff. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that thing kind of stuck with me. That why why did we act so differently? At that split second scenario, because if we if our officers had been nearby, they probably would have given us some reasonable kind of middle ground order. Mm. But we were kind of left to our own devices for that second mm. because there was no one within earshot, and there was no officer I think within earshot of the anti-tank guys either. So everyone was just acting completely out of instinct. Mm. Uh, first first thing they could think of, and this uh, this kind of stuck with me that why why were we so different? And mm. and then uh, you know uh, as I as I was doing my PhD, I kind of thought thought about this in terms of subcultures, that to mm. me it seemed that we had different subcultures, even within the same company. Mm. And I thought, well, if if that causes us to act so differently in, in a peacetime exercise, how how does it impact people in war? Mm. And and what kind of results can come out of these decisions? So that's mm. how I ended up with doing the, I want to look at tactical level stuff, not strategic level. I want mm. to look at mm. what, what do people do on the ground when you know things are happening around them? High stress, you know, combat situations, you have to rely on your gut feeling. Mm. What do people do and, and what kind of consequences come out of that and mm. how is that linked to these subcultures? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a really relevant and really interesting topic. Uh, I mean, it's really relevant, I think, for us in Australia and certainly, well, many of the Western militaries of over the recent conflicts. Uh, I mean, we have, uh, particularly in Australia, a lot of discussions going on at the moment about culture, particularly unit cultures um, that... Uh, have led to alleged war crimes potentially uh, in Afghanistan, and I know that uh, you know British military in the US uh, is is dealing with some of the uh, same challenges. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, Swedes are in any way, um, but uh, you did, uh, and we'll talk about that shortly. You did uh, look at a particular a Swedish or, or uh, a northern battalion uh, in Bosnia, uh, but firstly, how how do you define culture? Because it's one of those terms the you know they just kind of exist out there and the definition of it is always uh you know seems uh, uh seems rather broad and large uh so how, how do you how do you define it uh in, in your research and in your understanding 
Well, I, I took as as point of departure, I took this really broad, old, classic definition of culture being uh, this complex whole, which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. But that, mm. obviously, that's 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 not useful for me. So I kind of slimmed it down, uh, mm-hmm. and I was focused more on what uh, uh, what if culture is what. Uh, we theoretically call a logic of appropriateness, mm-hmm. uh, which which is uh, the feeling of what is appropriate to do in a given situation. So if you mm. if you think of yourself as, what kind of person am I? Uh, so let's say um, I'm an EOD a specialist in mm-hmm. an EOD platoon. Okay, so in this situation, what does an EOD specialist do? And then I think mm. back. Well, what have I seen other people like myself do? And then mm. I kind of do what 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 I, what I would expect someone else to do if they were me which is based on what I have observed and learned and like absorbed socially mm. uh so so it's it's in a, in a simple way it's the thing that shapes my gut feeling as part of a group mm-hmm. so of course i mean i my my gut can tell me things individually as well but when when it comes to this feeling of what am i what kind of person am i in relation to this group that i'm part of what 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 would someone who is a member of this group do right now? Mm-hmm. That's how I how I view a subculture or a, like a tactical level culture, uh, right. unit culture, as you mentioned. Yeah, but it's not a. Uh, if I understand correctly, then you're saying it's not a cognitive process. It's not something where I sit there and necessarily think about. It. It's a it's a it's a response mechanism. Uh, it's almost like yeah. a like like a pro, like software. You know, it's a this yeah. is this is the particular software that's running inside my mind, uh, and this software has been installed by my uh, participation in a particular uh, social group and, and, and embodying and inculcating the behaviors of that particular social group, which occurs, of course, through, you know, in, in say, the EOV case. Uh, it's through this forming, norming, storming, performing piece uh, of building a team, um, you know, learning your trade, uh, performance uh, on exercises and such. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it's it's not a cognitive. It's not like a it's not like a, not like a conscious thing. Mm, it's not mm. a conscious process in any way. Uh, it, it's the thing you do when you do not have the time or or the luxury of of cognitively, like consciously, rationally processing your options. Mm. It's it's what happens when you just act instinctively or reflexively, as it were. Um, that 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 and like you said, it's 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 a thing that. You become part of, and uh, uh, and it, you become part of it, and it becomes part of you, kind mm, of. Mm, uh, mm. And it's not a static thing; it can it changes, it, or it can change over time. It's not something that is like frozen, because mm. there, there are these things that influence this, uh, and they can in a positive or a negative direction. Uh, but it's it's something that's always like, um, it's it's always being like reconstituted, re- reconstructed. So mm, whenever mm, you mm. act and someone else in your group sees what you're doing, you're kind of reinforcing or 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 possibly even reshaping this mm, culture. Mm. Which is the idea that culture is emergent, right? It's not a it's not a static, uh, no. uh, fixed. It's a very malleable. Uh, which is of course how we then see, particularly subcultures, and, and we'll get to them in a second. But particularly how we see subcultures uh, can potentially morph uh, and lead down a path. Uh, you know, of things like atrocities or things that are yeah, yeah. Uh, morally uh, just unjustifiable. Um, so, so, we, so what you're saying is that within particular cultures uh, exist subcultures, and and how do these subcultures then contribute 
to the sense of identity and then, of course, decision-making of those particular of members within that subculture. Yeah, so first of all, I mean, um, it, 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 as I said, it can be positive or a negative thing. So in terms of identity, you can you can have this strong feeling of pride, for example, that is mm. associated with this. It, it, it's one of the components uh, of, of a unit culture or subculture. Uh, but it's not it's not something that automatically happens. Mm. You can also feel nothing for your unit or or even a sense of shame. So that that's also possible. Mm-hmm. But um, most of the examples I've looked at is is it, it's more common, I think, uh, to to feel more of a pride and a sense of belonging of some sort. Mm-hmm. So so I, for example, and, and this is also uh, frequently associated with symbols or like mm-hmm. expressions of, of belonging. So you know, unit symbols. So. When I was in EOD, we had this this very this unique blue kind of patch uh, uh, on our uniforms. Really stood out because like gold and blue and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. not very <laughs> not not good for camouflage, but it was. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we loved we loved having that on our sleeves because you can you can you could see it a mile away mm-hmm. and it really signaled mm-hmm. something that we were something special and mm-hmm. and we all had it and it was like it, it was a bond we shared kind of, mm-hmm, but who mm-hmm. who who the others were not privy to so. Uh, and you have like uh, special forces units with their kind of you know colors on their berets and 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 insignia and patches and all these things are like symbols that show who who do I belong to and and how do I like distinguish myself from other people who are not part of this unit. Hmm. Um, sorry, and, and the, what was the other part of your question? It, and then how does so so once you're part of a particular group, how does that that sense of belonging shape and influence your decision making uh, on day to day? Uh, whether in operations or you know even in barracks well it it doesn't it doesn't like determine everything you do it's not like you become this automaton that just acts mm. like a machine uh, but it it kind of it, it's it sits there in the background it simmers in the background uh so i mean some some things you do you do without thinking because mm-hmm. they're like everyday tasks let's say everyday priorities maybe and and that that's where you can that's one uh, uh, area where you could see like a, a, a subculture helping you just structure what you're doing and how to do it and how to prioritize. But the other part is uh, when you're in this high stress situation. So what I argued in my PhD dissertation is that you have when you have two components present in a in a situation, uh, one being a, a very high degree of stress. So when you fear for your life, for the lives of your of, of your of your friends, uh, or you know lives maybe mm. of someone you want to protect, something mm. high stakes, high stress. Uh, so you have to, and you have to make a decision now. You you, you can't postpone it. And the other part is uncertainty, mm. and that is you don't exactly know what to do. It's not obvious what to do because you can have a high stress situation where it's perfectly obvious what you need to do, and that then it, that your your um, your subculture doesn't necessarily have to come into it. Uh, at that point, because you, you, there's only one feasible option. Mm. But when you have different options and you're not sure what to do and you're not sure wh- what kind of consequences can I expect from this action or this action, mm. uh, well, how do you handle that? If Because you don't have the time to think about it. You don't have the time. And even if you did have the time, you can't weigh your options rationally because you don't know what the consequences would be. Mm. So that's, and that's when the gut feeling kicks in. And, mm-hmm. uh, the advantage of having a subculture uh, is that when you have people in a in a unit and they have a similar gut feeling in response to a given situation, they will act more synchronized or more coordinated. 
So they, they will do something that is fairly similar. Uh, and that helps the unit act as, as a unit instead mm. of like individuals doing all kinds of random things. Because if everyone did whatever they felt like and it was completely random, then the unit would cease to function as a mm. unit. Mm. And it would be completely unpredictable. But when you have this kind of shared frame of reference, um, then you know that you, you, could, you don't have to look what the other guys are doing. You, mm. you, you know what they're going to do. You don't have to, th- and you, it, you, it's not a conscious thing. You don't think about, oh, I know what they're going to do. You just know it. Mm. And you just act automatically in the same way. And all of this is just completely reflexive. You don't, you yeah. don't, you don't think about it and it just happens. Mm. But it, it helps the unit remain cohesive when it works. Yeah. So it, it, you can also have a subculture that doesn't work. Mm. Uh, so you just put a bunch of peop- random people together and you don't give them time to form a subculture or you don't give them some f- common frame of reference, and then they will act uh, uh, randomly, random. almost. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. So you, you, and and or they have a subculture that doesn't work. Maybe a subculture that's falling apart because they have conflicts within the group, and then mm. then it won't work. So mm. it's it's an automatic. It, it doesn't. It, you don't get these advantages automatically. You get them yeah. when you have a subculture that works. That is. Uh, coherent, as I as I put it, as you, yeah, which has had time to, as as you say, form and actually mm-hmm. develop a, a a response mechanism to the various situations that might occur. Which I I really like the fact that you're talking about uncertainty, uh, because I mean the, the way I understand, even in my own mind, culture that is that is absolutely what culture is. Uh, it develops to help you deal with uncertainty of your fellow uh, uh, compatriots in your social group. Uh, you know, the reason we shake hands, uh, you know, is 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 to reduce uncertainty. Okay, this person is friendly. Now, I remember, in fact, I remember in Sweden uh, being struck, even though, you know, I'm, I'm broadly speaking culturally aware, but in Sweden, uh, as you fully well know, uh, men hug uh, as, as, a, as a greeting, you know, yeah. without, oftentimes without even a handshake, which for me mm-hmm. as an ethnic Bosnian uh, is not a problem. That's, you know, the, the actual, uh, the... Breaching of the personal space is not an issue, but as a Bosnian, you generally would first shake hands and then you will hug. Yeah, okay. Whereas in Sweden, I've had a number of uh, kind of awkward moments where I'd go for a handshake and the you know guy opposite would, would just come in <laughs> yeah. for a hug and it would just kind of awkward, <laughs> yeah, yeah. awkward you know, which yeah. is exactly what culture is, right? It reduces that uncertainty uh, uh, because you have the same program uh, so you can function. Uh, and same for you know all other uh, cultural technologies that we have uh, whether they be traffic lights to you know uh, you know zoom uh, they're all reduce uncertainty about who's going to do what and facilitate uh, i guess coordination uh, within social groups so that really that really does speak to me uh, and it makes intuitive sense why a subculture why it's important to understand and appreciate the existence of a subculture uh, and then of course play an experiment with that subculture how it operates uh, uh, in a given uh, scenario, uh, and based on your research, ha- how is that best done? I mean, this is a, a, I'd imagine through training and trying to get uh, as realistic training scenarios as we would uh, uh, for a military, uh, as we would in an operational setting. Is that is that what you've experienced or what you found? Yeah, that's part of it. I think. I mean, realistic training, obviously. Um, there's no good uh, alternative, really. Mm. I mean, unrealistic training is not gonna is it's not gonna useless. be useful for anyone. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, realistic training is one way of of like encountering these uh, these challenges that you are likely to to have to cope with in a real situation, and that will 
hopefully that will show you to what extent your subculture is is able to function and uh if it doesn't work i mean if if there's friction if there's like problems then um in a best case scenario the the subculture will like adjust to to accommodate and and mm-hmm. be more effective which doesn't necessarily happen automatically but if mm. if you have like functional leadership that that helps guide the process then that should happen but there are other way there are other things as well that are more difficult to influence and, and also more difficult to identify so you have like these symbols i mentioned for example mm-hmm. a lot of these symbols they, it's not necess- sometimes it, it there everyone is very aware that this is a symbol and it has this symbolic value so special forces units they they know the value of symbols for example but it, sometimes i think these this this process can also be a bit more random or a bit more organic so th- i don't think anyone really thought about these patches we had that they would have this symbolic value mm. but of course they, it automatically just happened that way uh, because it was something that was important to us. Our, I mean, our commanding officers th- didn't necessarily, I think, think all that much about mm. it. Because I mean, they had, they always had these patches, but for us, it was new and it was something. Uh, it was a something mm. we had to take a test mm. for. It was like a sense of accomplishment. Mm. Um, but then you also have like more. More sometimes you have these this historical past that a unit uh, kind of clings to, not necessarily uh, uh, in a, in a formal sense, but it could be something that just seeps through from from generation to generation mm, and uh, mm. either positively or negatively so i mean well, one of the cases i looked at was uh german submarine captains during world war ii and they had this very powerful influence from world war one because they had these like role models and these predecessors who had done something that was quite similar to what they had been doing mm-hmm. Uh, and they felt that they had been quite successful, these predecessors. So, of course, mm. they wanted to emulate and improve on this example. And this, this aggressive kind of uh, uh, more pretty ruthless kind of submarine warfare where you just, you know, you, you hide and then you attack civilian targets, uh, even though they're, I mean, the, these targets will be merchant ships. So they mm-hmm. would be they would be le- legitimate targets of war, but they were still civilian defenseless mm. ships. Mm. But they had this like hunter instinct that, grew out of this legacy. And the Americans didn't have that because uh, the Americans didn't have this historical experience of mm. fighting against an island nation, attacking its uh, lines of supply. They, they, they had different ideas about escorting surface combatants and, or maybe just going on recon. And, and they had lots of different impulses, but they had, didn't have this kind of single idea of a purpose and a tradition uh, mm, to guide mm, them mm. that the Germans had. Um, so so some, I don't think... I mean, the Germans were very aware that they would they would reinforce this this very very yeah. uh, um, you know systematically and and Dönitz being the commander he he had this background and of course everyone knew that and he would he would draw on this background, but and I think in the American case it wasn't obvious to anyone what was missing uh, that they didn't have this tradition to fall back on and that it was actually a problem that they didn't have this tradition. Uh, and that they didn't didn't try to associate themselves with us with a with like this clear purpose. Uh, uh, and I think that it took them quite some time before they understood what the problem was. Uh, um, and by that time, they had started to create a new tradition, a new mm, kind mm. of uh, new role models, new new people to new examples to fall back on. Mm. So it, it, it's a kind of a mix. And also, uh, uh, one of the things I look at in my dissertation is that uh, the kind of equipment you have also uh, uh, has an impact on your subculture yeah. because it enables you to do some things and it creates certain incentives to do some things and it 
makes it impossible or difficult to do other things. And and if you're you, you can't have a subculture that tells you to do things that your equipment won't allow you to do. So your mm. subculture will kind of adjust itself to whatever equipment you have. So uh, in the Germans, you have, you have a submarine. A submarine, I mean, is extremely fragile. Mm. Uh, a, a single lucky shot from a surface escort vessel, and it just goes to pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one lucky hit from a, from a depth charge, that's all it takes, and then you're all dead. Yeah. Uh, and you're also slow. I mean, a submarine is not a fast mm. vessel. At on this, I mean, World War II submarine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The World yeah. War II submarine is is it's not fast. It's it's about uh, you know it it can barely keep up with with a surface vessel going mm. at at a cruise speed, uh, so slightly faster uh, mm. than mm. than like mm. a lumbering merchant ship. Nowhere near as fast as as a as a you know thoroughbred surface combat yeah. ship. Yeah, right. And if it if it goes underneath the waves, it becomes extremely slow uh, uh, and and it can really you can't really escape uh, mm, because mm. everyone has a speed advantage. So what do you do? Well, of course, you you can't you can't just go in guns blazing because you'll you'll die. Um, you can't go for you can go for kind of a hit and run attack, mm, mm. but you can't really run. <laughs> you can yeah, hit, yeah, yeah. but then you have to hide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and and you have these uh, escort vessels that are really really dangerous because they can kill you very quickly and easily. Mm. Uh, and they can hunt you for a pro- for a long time. Mm. Uh, so what what do the Germans do? Well, they just instill this sense of bravado in their captains that okay, so everything is stacked against us, except that they don't know when we're coming for them. That's the mm. advantage we mm. have. Mm. We have the initiative. Mm. Uh, we we pick uh, when we are going to attack, and they don't. Mm. Uh, so they were just like we we hide, we ambush them, and then we just attack. Uh, even if the odds are against us, even if they're heavily defended, even if we know that they're going to come after us, we go all in. We just go in, go in for the kill, and then we hide and we hope for the best. Mm, and mm, if mm. we if we get out if we get out of it unscathed or at least alive, yeah. then glory is ours, basically. Yeah. And this, the, the glory comes from this this gung ho attitude, uh, this mm. risk taking. It, it yeah. gives you the glory. It gives you the pride. And mm. if you if you try to play it safe. Then you're a coward. That's what yeah. they told. I mean, they were very. I've seen this explicitly. Uh, if even if you have a badly damaged submarine, uh, and you decide, okay, I'm not going to risk another attack with this ship, with this boat, because I can barely submerge in time, and they'll mm. they're just going to kill me. So I'm I'm going to go back to base and get repaired. And then you get chewed out in front yeah. of all your men, yeah, yeah. in front of yeah. all your colleagues. You get chewed out by by the commander who says that you're a coward and you're a disgrace mm. because you could still you could operate the boat. I mean, the boat wasn't sinking or it wasn't destroyed. You could still, you could have pulled off another attack, even if it had killed you. It would have been preferable if it had killed you, because then you would have been a hero. Now you're yeah, just coward. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is. I mean, the power narrative and 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 the sense of belonging again, again, that's really infused in these narratives or these symbols uh, uh, or heroes. Um, and I guess this is where the idea of leadership also really comes into play. Uh, and I think this really comes out really strongly uh, in your dissertation when you're writing about uh, Nordbat 2. Um, so maybe this is a good time to pick that up because I think it's rather relevant uh, as to what we see when we're talking about culture and subcultures uh, of, you know, a unit that was part of uh, the UN uh, mission uh, in Bosnia. Uh, so maybe I'll, uh, I'll hand over to you. Maybe if you can just give us kind of the, again, just some kind of the wave tops of, you know, what was the, 
I mean, I'm from Bosnia, so many of my listeners have heard me talk about Bosnia uh, a lot, but maybe just kind of the wave tops of what was the situation uh, that North Batu was thrown into, uh, both kind of strategically, but also tactically on the ground uh, that they had to deal with. Uh, and then we're going to get into the uh, what they actually did on the ground. Yeah. So Norbat II was deployed uh, late 1993. So the war had been going on for for a while by then, mm. and mm. Uh, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't new. And uh, the people fighting on the ground had developed strategies and methods and 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 tactics, kind of. Uh, to to accommodate for this, the, the kind of war they were fighting by then, it wasn't it wasn't like a, a conventional war by then. I mean, it had it had morphed into this very brutal kind of civil war uh, that we know it today. Uh, and the UN had a mission, a peacekeeping mission, uh, that was supposed to keep the peace. Uh, and and a very important part of this was to protect civilians. So one part was uh, the the kind of the the assumption. Uh, when when you when they deployed UN peacekeepers was that there would be a peace treaty and that they would kind of like oversee that treaty mm. uh, the the implementation of that treaty and just keep an eye on everyone uh, like they had done a lot, a lot many many times before uh, but there was no peace to keep because yeah. the, the peace treaties they didn't never lasted yeah. so you, instead you had this fluid kind of com- constant combat going on and off um and you had i mean you had the the regular parties to the conflict of course you had the bosniaks uh you had the croats and you had the bosnian serbs uh being like the main main parties to the conflict but then you mm. also had these roving bands uh that were run by warlords they i mean normally they would have some sort of like allegiance uh, on paper to one or the other sides but they would they would I mean, they would be more interested in, in enriching themselves mm. than anything mm. else. I mean, they, they would, for example, they would try to control smuggle routes. They would uh, loot civilians uh, or just attack civilians outright uh, and uh, and uh, go into cities or villages and just steal whatever they could mm. and, and mm. commit all sorts of hideous atrocities. And they were kind of out of control. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean... To some extent, they were tolerated, and to some extent, they were just impossible to control for anyone, and they would just exploit this this kind of uh, chaos that was going on, mm. uh, and 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 use it to their advantage. And into this, uh, the 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 UN was just trying to find some way to to operate, and and not doing very well. Um, well, well, just to throw in an anecdote from a from an ethnic Bosnian's mm. perspective from Sarajevo, the the local term for the UN, even in the in early ninety two, while I was still there, uh, was the Smurfs, uh, you yeah, know, which yeah. which which is depicts really that. Uh, the paralysis, effectively, that yeah. you know UN soldiers were experiencing. You know, there were there were caricatures uh, who, and as you rightly point out, you know, the you know, what do you do? How do you keep peace when there's no peace to keep? Uh, it's a it's a, it was a tragic circumstance for many of the soldiers, from, but but because of their their hands were tied, uh, but kind of geostrategically, it was uh, that was that, that that's all they could do. Yeah, and it also shows an interesting disconnect because I mean the the original mandate from the UN Security Council is is quite strongly worded. I mm. mean, if you just if if that's all you have, it you can read it as as, as something that would give you the uh, the uh, the freedom to actually engage in combat to protect civilians. Mm. But of course, the problem is that that was just the the, the kind of the, the the top level document, and then you had the these this chain of command that was supposed to implement it. And they were adding all of these caveats and all of these rules and uh, rules of engagement that were extremely bizarrely restrictive. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, just 
simple things like firing and self-defense became this convoluted, weird process of taking steps that, I mean, you cannot reasonably expect anyone to to have a checklist when someone is shooting mm. at you to just mm. see when can I fire. So people, they would, they would, yeah, like you said, yeah. they were paralyzed. They froze up, didn't know what to do. And because they didn't know what to do, they would avoid situations where they might have to to face confrontation mm. or face mm. uh, face danger. So and and of course, like I said, the parties to the conflict they were very well aware of this by the by this time, and they were using it to the fullest extent possible. They were like maneuvering around the UN all the time, mm. and and into this comes the, the Swedish, Danish, uh, also some small uh, Norwegian part, but. The, the 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 guys on the ground were primarily Swedes and Danes, mostly Swedes, some Danes, uh, and they get thrown into this. Uh, and their commanding officer, he has read the UN Security Council, uh, the, the 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 kind of instructions uh, mm, that mm, that mm. were issued by the UN Security Council, and he's like, "So this, I can see that that this is my mission." And then you have these guys between me and the UN Security Council. But if they are going to be an obstacle to me uh, achieving my mission objectives, then I will simply ignore them because mm. that's how we do things. They, they, they are not in a position to know what's going on on the ground, at least not as well as I am, thinks the battalion commander. So that's, this that's is in the national chain of command, right? In the, in, in the Nordbat, I guess, uh, well, Swedish, both, Danish. Both, actually. So, so, you have, you have, yeah, so you have both the, both the UN chain of command. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have like regional commands and, mm-hmm. and and various levels, and then you have national commands, uh, which are supposed to be a bit more hands off, but of course aren't. Mm. Uh, so you have you have the, in this case you have the Swedish government, uh, the, the Swedish actually the Swedish military hierarchy uh, was was also very much uh, uh, a part of this this culture of autonomy and and freedom of decision making. So they mm. they they stayed out. They said it's your call. You you do what you need to do, and we'll back you up. But then you had a government, and the government they had ideas about what you're supposed to do and not. Mm, and the mm. UN had these the rules of engagement and all these kinds of uh, uh, different kind of prohibitions and stuff like that. And the battalion commander simply decided that I know what my mission is to, is whatever the UN Security Council has decided, and and this is what I'm going to try to do. And whatever anyone else says is is a recommendation and not not mm, mm. Not, not an order. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's incredible. And, and so many strains uh, pop into mind. I mean, the first one is this, you know, especially when we're talking about how culture is shaped, uh, you know, whether we're talking about symbols or language or, or, or narratives. Uh, and, you know, just by what you were saying there, we can see how the UN culture was shaped on the ground, uh, you know, was shaped through these rules and regulations, uh, which ultimately are symbols, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're writing uh, that are sending you a very clear message uh, as to what you can and can't do, um, and of course that was, you know, making the soldiers on the ground uncertain about what they can do. So you know, increasing their uncertainty levels, uh, and of course, in a time of stress, they went with what they know. Hey, this is safe. I know that I can't get in trouble if I don't shoot. Uh, so let's pull back, uh, and that, of course, over top, uh, it 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 decreases a soldier's willingness to find out about the local culture, about the local people, about what's going on in the actual local context, because there's no incentive to do so. Because, of course, the more you know, the more you'll care, and the more you will feel uh, the pain of not being able to do anything. When you know you can't do anything, 
then the safest thing is to emotionally distance yourself. Uh, and and yeah. again, we've seen this, uh, of course, uh, famously with uh, with um, with the Dutch uh, peacekeepers, uh, which yeah. we can probably touch on as well. But it's very interesting to me, having seen Sweden, when you talk about this, well, mission command ultimately, as we as we uh, as we come to understand it, um, what is it about Sweden? And a Swedish battalion commander, so a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, I mean, this is somebody who's been in the military for you know, arguably 15, 20 years, uh, has a broad amount of experience, uh, but it's not somebody who you would consider in the grand scheme of things. It's not, not, not a general, not a leader of an army. It's not a, a foreign minister. It's not somebody who would, one would expect uh, uh, to play a necessarily a, a geopolitical role uh, as some of the battalion commanders uh, in Norbad did. So what is it about this trust component that you mentioned between the Swedish government uh, and the battalion commander or the really lived experience of mission command uh, in this sense uh, that's very different to Sweden than you would say to, to other countries? I or think or is the, it actually? It's probably Is it actually different? Yes, I think it, it is different. Um, I think there, there, there are two other examples that come close to Sweden, especially during this this time period. And that is uh, the way the Germans trained before World War II mm-hmm. uh, with Auftrags Taktik. And the other is the way the Israelis <coughs> trained. Uh, so the Israelis during the 60s, 70s, um, especially. That, that, those are the two, the only two cases I know that, that are as pure kind of mission command as Sweden mm. was. I think it comes, the thing is I, that unites these examples is, is this need to maximize the potential of every single decision maker to as, as much as possible. So Sweden um, was, was, uh, was facing this existential threat from the Soviet Union. So the entire military organization was built to fight an existential war against a vastly superior enemy, an enemy that would have huge, I mean, huge numbers and also a lot of advanced technology mm. and, and would probably not have a, a particularly hard time shattering the, the lines of communication, mm. Mm. disrupting uh, chains of command, inflicting significant casualties, all these things. So the entire military organization has to be able to operate under these conditions. And that mm. means that every unit has to be able to operate independently, but not randomly. It, it, the unit has to be able to uh, contribute some kind of strategic value, even if it's cut off. Mm. And this is mm. like one of the, that, that was one of the most fundamental core aspects that if your unit is cut off, you will switch to what we called um, the free war, mm-hmm. uh, which, which means that now you fight this war freely on your own. Mm, mm. Engage the enemy as you see fit uh, at, uh, at like the time and, and, opportunity, and a time and a situation which, of your choosing, but you mm, have to mm. continue the fight. Um, and, and you do that until you can reestablish communications with superior commanders. But the, the one thing that was completely uh, uh, anathema, the thing that you absolutely cannot do is to be uh, passive. Mm-hmm. So, like for, like for the German submarine captains, cowardice was was the thing you were not supposed to. I mean, that was prohibited. And for for uh, for Sweden, it was inaction. Inaction was the greatest sin. Passivity. I mean, that would immediately disqualify it's you. So as a leader. strange. To, I mean, uh, I mean, Sweden that hasn't 
seen a war for 200 years, uh, I mean, it, it does come as a surprise to hear uh, those words. And, of course, many were surprised of the actions of Nordbatu, which we, which we haven't touched on yet. But so, so it might be time to actually give our listeners an understanding of what actually happened on the ground uh, to give some context to, you know, how, mm-hmm. how, how unique, uh, you know, this set of circumstances were and, and, and what, what Nordbatu actually ended up doing on the ground. Yeah, so I think one one of the good examples of this uh, is that is when uh, very shortly after the uh, the battalion uh, Nordbatu had arrived in Bosnia, they uh, were supposed to uh, take responsibility for protecting a hospital. Um, it was uh, not not like a conventional hospital; it was more like uh, uh, an asylum uh, for uh, yeah. People who were with with psychological afflictions, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it wasn't like a full uh, a complex either because they had evacuated a lot of people, but some were left behind because presumably they were too difficult to to uh, to evacuate difficult cases. So they had like a skeleton staff of nurses and a few doctors and some patients, uh, but they remained at the hospital uh, in in this compound, very remote location in the mountains. If you look at a map, you can see how how ex- how, how Isolated as places, mm. uh, and they there had been a, a company of UN peacekeepers there protecting it before, and they were uh, due to be relieved, and uh, a Swedish platoon was sent out to to take responsibility for this for protecting this mm. compound. Mm. So you replace first of all you replace a company with a platoon. So of course mm. the numbers are not in any way comparable, and. Uh, uh, some some of the parties to the conflict were watching this play out, and they uh, they waited for the company uh, of peacekeepers to depart and for the Swedish platoon to uh, to arrive, and then they mined the access roads because this place was difficult to reach, so it was pretty easy to mine the access roads. Mm. So now the Swedish platoon is cut off from reinforcements, and then they issued an ultimatum, which is also pretty common way of the common common tactic for them. Issue an ultimatum that is, you know, it's not up immediately obvious what they are, what they want to do. Mm. So they just said, hand over the Muslim nurses. That's all we want. Give us mm. the Muslim nurses, and we'll we'll leave you alone. What are they going to do with the Muslim nurses? Mm. I mean, that's very mm. deliberately left out, mm. and then that that would give like. They know how the how the UN peacekeepers operate by then by now. They want to give them like a way to some sort of deniability. So they mm. say, oh, but they only wanted to. I don't know, take them captive. We didn't know they were going to kill them or rape them or whatever. So that's deliberately vague. But the Swedes say, no, absolutely not. We're protecting this compound. You get nothing. And they're they're kind of surprised by this because they know that, I mean, they they have this enormous uh, advantage in firepower Mm -hmm. and numbers Mm -hmm. surrounding uh, the the hospital complex. And they know that the Swedes have no reinforcements that can get to them quickly. So they start shelling them with with mortars, just you know, increase the pressure, see mm. if they can get them to cave. And the Swedes are just like, no. So this is you're gonna fight, okay? So you're, you're gonna get a fight then. Mm. So they take up uh, positions on the rooftops, and uh, uh, the uh, the platoon commander he radios back to, uh, to the battalion commander, and the battalion commander says, "It's your call. You're the one mm. on location. I'm not. It's your call." And the platoon commander says, "Okay." 
we'll do whatever it takes. We're not giving in. Mm. So he tells everyone, you have to go to full combat alert, uh, prepare for, for battle, and uh, if they come, we'll fight them as f- for as long as we can. And they take up positions, and, the, and the, the radio equipment gets shattered by mortars, and they just crawl out to fix it, and they remain in positions throughout the entire night. Uh, and this unit <laughs> with that issued the ultimatum, they don't know exactly what to, what, what to do mm. anymore. Mm. So they mm. try to adjust the ultimatum. Mm. which is also a very common tactic. So they say, okay, we're not going to tell you that you have to give us the nurses. Just give give us access to the compound. Let us let us inspect the compound, and then we'll leave you alone. Of course, this is a way to just infiltrate the compound, yeah. and by then it would be impossible to fight yeah, them because they would yeah. be mixed yeah. up and they would be too close and, and everywhere, yeah. And the Swedish, Swedish platoon commander understands this. So he says, no, you're not coming in. Um, there's nothing yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to, to discuss here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> And they remain in, in, in prepared to engage. Uh, um, and uh, finally, this this issue, this unit that issued the ultimatum just gives up they, they, because they have no interest in taking any casualties. They mm-hmm. don't care mm-hmm. about the Muslim mm-hmm. nurses or anything. They mm-hmm. just want to ex- exercise power. And, mm-hmm. But they're not they're not willing to fight a platoon to the death just to mm-hmm. see what happens mm-hmm. uh, after they win. Because and, and, and not prepared for the for the for the wrath uh, that's coming down. Uh, exactly, because they are doing troops. Yeah. yeah, they also know that threatening UN peacekeepers, that's fine. Mm. Uh, or, or if if one if a few of them perhaps are killed in something that you could make make it look like mm. an accident, mm. that's mm. also fine. Yeah. But deliberately slaughtering an entire platoon that that's going to create some that's going to lead to some consequences, and they don't want that. So mm. so mm. they they just depart. They they leave. And the Swedes have won. And this mm. was one of the things, one of the early events that became like on a part of this, the the, the tradition that would grow out of this. That, that mm. this was something they could take pride in. Um, that they would they were willing to stick it out for the to protect people and mm. risking their lives against this vastly superior uh, yeah. adversary. Yeah. And I think that 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 is that is tied into the Swedish military tradition from the Cold War of being prepared because. They were always trained to fight someone who is mm. vastly superior. Mm. They were never in a trained to fight someone uh, on equal terms. That because the Soviets would always come in these monstrous numbers, and they would control the skies, and they would bomb everyone, and they would probably decimate your unit. And, but your unit was would, would continue to fight until mm. it was rendered completely ineffective. Ineffective. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I can kind of intuitively respond that, that you know, Australian Army certainly really espouses the the idea of mission command and you know i can think back to to you know elements of not operations i was involved in but uh, but certainly operations that australian military has been involved in where mission command has ex- was exercised but one of the things that we we can't forget is that this was in the early 90s when we didn't just send armies on to expeditionary invasions this is pre-afghanistan pre-iraq uh, pre-syria this is when you know, we were enjoying the peace dividend post the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the West, broadly speaking, didn't want to go to wars anymore. Uh, militaries were reducing their budgets uh, left, right, and center. Uh, and Bosnia was a thorn in their side. It was uh, certainly not uh, not a quagmire they were willing to, uh, I guess, really, really bloody their troops on. And there certainly wasn't a lot of political will uh, for that from for 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 most. Uh, of the militaries that were that were there at the time, uh, of course, until NATO, uh, until it switched uh, to NATO and ISAF, um, uh, uh, you know, towards the end of the war. Uh, so I think that plays that that, and I say this only to draw a distinction of how 
because my, some of my listeners might say, well, that wasn't that unique. Of course, they stood up to, to protect civilians, but that was very unique, very, very unique for Bosnia at the time uh, and stood out. And the battalion commander, he set the tone uh, of the unit because he also he also flew in to Bosnia pretty upgunned, didn't he? I mean, he he demanded yeah. uh, something very different to what normal units were were were, were having on the on, on the, in Bosnia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, uh, like exactly like you said, uh, there are still like stacks of academic literature from this era, from the '90s, that said that Western countries cannot accept any kind of losses. I mean, mm. ten guys get killed and they will pull out of country. They they don't care. They they they're not going to take any kind of risk because I mean. You had the Americans in Somalia with the Black Hawks, and you know a few dozen guys get killed and dragged through the streets, and it's mm. it's the most outrageous scandal in in, in a decade. Uh, so no, it was really unprecedented. And uh, the other thing was that uh, the, the the kind of the experience of peacekeeping missions was modeled after the Middle East, where you mm. could just sit sit and stare at completely static lines of uh, of uh, people uh, looking at each other across a no man's land, and and mm. that was it. That was what they were expecting. So, of course, you don't need heavy weaponry for that. You can just, you know, maybe they thought that an APC would be, that would be fine mm. in case something mm. happens from the UN perspective. Mm. And the battalion commander was like, no, this is, this is a war zone I'm going into. And I'm not, going in, I'm not going to go into a war zone equipped with anything less than what I would have at home in a war zone. So mm. I want uh, a tank company for starters, mm. <laughs> a mm. Danish yeah. tank company with, yeah. with leopard, le- leopard tanks. Uh, and I want my uh, my infantry fighting vehicles that we use at home with the, with their twenty millimeter autom- automatic cannons. Mm, mm, and we're mm. gonna bring uh, uh, we're gonna bring machine guns. We're gonna bring anti tank guided missiles. We're gonna bring mortars. We're gonna bring everything I would have in a mechanized battalion. Is that's what I'm gonna bring? Mm, and mm. they were like, "This is outrageous! You can't mm. bring tanks to Bosnia. That's absurd." And he was like, "Well, I, well, I am." Because I'm, mm. I'm, I need those tanks, or I'm not going. He was really, he was really <laughs> doubling down. Yeah. Uh, and I said, I know the Danes have these tanks, and they've been upgraded just last year. They're like state of the art tanks, and I want them. Mm. Um, and and for the if the infantry fighting vehicles, the politicians tried to say, well, we, we don't have that many to spare. And he said, but we have huge numbers uh, for mobilization in case of war. So I'm just going to pick some of those. Because they're mm. just standing around, mm. and, and and no one was there to stop him. So he just pulled a lot of vehicles out of store, long term storage that mm. were supposed to be used for national emergencies. And he was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring these. These will, these will be fine." Yeah. Um, and and then, of course, down he went. And a uh, funny thing is, uh, most people don't know, but when uh, just as as they were deploying to Bosnia, there was a question from the UN. Uh, would uh, would the Swedish Danish battalion be ready to uh, uh, take responsibility for Srebrenica for the enclave? Mm-hmm. And Henriksson said, uh, uh, first of all, he said, uh, I'm not very keen on, on guarding an enclave that is difficult to defend. But if I'm going, I'm absolutely going to bring everything I have, including the tanks. Mm-hmm. I'm not going in there without the tanks. And they said, well, the uh, Bosnian Serbs are not going to accept that. And he said, well, then I'm not going. I'm mm-hmm. not going to, to Srebrenica without the tanks. And then they asked the Dutch, and the Dutch were like, "Oh, well, fine. We'll 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 take over Srebrenica. Mm. No problem. Mm. We're not going to bring yeah. any tanks. Nothing like that." So he, and we I mean, know he what knew, happened. He, I mean, yeah. And for yeah, anyone who doesn't know what happened, know what happened yeah. For, for anyone who doesn't know, this is the Srebrenica is the the place where you know nearly eight thousand men and boys were massacred, uh, uh, predominantly Bosnian Muslim uh, men and boys, and and the Dutch peacekeepers were basically chained to their uh, armored personnel carriers, uh, and 
uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very very embarrassing episode for the Dutch military, but of course it also the Dutch government paid a very heavy, very heavy price uh, because yeah. I think the whole government uh, ended up resigning uh, over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that a few was years the, later. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. So I mean, Henriksson, the the battalion commander, he 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 I he kind of saw the situation in a in a very more realistic kind of light. So he he said, well, if they're going to attack me. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna base my assumptions on what happens if they're gonna come after me and attack me, mm. and I want to mm. be able to outgun them. I'm, mm. I can outnumber them, of course, but I can mm. outgun them. That that's mm. what that's one thing I can do because mm. they don't have tanks like this. And he was right, of course. And uh, and and the Bosnian Serbs were not not very keen. No one was very keen on these UN tanks, but he got his tanks. And and uh, and at the end, that that turned out to be a very important asset for him. Mm. Mm. Um, so uh, it's another one of these, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go. Yeah, so one of the another one of these examples is when when the uh, Bosnian Serbs uh, tried to bait the tank com- company by by firing mortars at at a Swedish observation post because uh, they knew the tanks would drive out uh, to assist, and then they had prepared this ambush uh, with uh, with uh, concealed guns and missile positions. Mm. And uh, yeah, tanks drove out. They started shooting at the tanks. They were expecting the tanks to fall back, and then stay within the compound knowing but that's not what happened mm. so the danes they, they just went berserk started shooting up the hillside mm. targeting mm. all the positions and the orders were destroy all uh, all the positions destroy the guns destroy the tank missile positions mm. Mm. they were just they fired off 72 main gun rounds and uh Jeez, yeah just wiped out wiped out the bosnian serbs and then one of the stray uh gun uh, shells from one of the tanks hit uh, an ammunition depot uh, on the other side of a hill and set it off uh, in a huge explosion. And wow. uh, the, the Danes estimated that like possibly somewhere around 100 to 200 even maybe uh, people were killed. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And the Bosnian Serbs denied all of this, but they, they, they kind of learned their lesson. And because mm. uh, the, the Swedes and Danes were like, if they push us back once, mm. they will just keep going. Yeah. We, we can never back down. If they start shooting, we shoot back. If they shoot, we shoot even more. Mm. And then the the UN command uh, went kind of they went ballistic over this. Mm. They were like, so they they asked the Danish uh, the Danish commander of the of the company. They said, so why why did you fire off seventy two main gun rounds? And he said, well, I didn't have any more. Uh, so that, <laughs> uh, that would have gone down into legend. Uh, I mean, that's just uh, what, yeah. what a what a response. Uh, that, that's fantastic. There's something really important here, though. That's the that's the relationship between the military and 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 politics or the executive arm of government. Um, you know, of course, in in democracies, uh, the military does what it's told to do by the sitting government, uh, and there's that's you know. That's just how it is. That's uh, that's that's part of the military's role is to be responsive to the government's needs. But it seems rather unique, or maybe I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems at least to me unique uh, the relationship between Swedish military chain of command and Swedish politicians. That the actual real kind of uh, intent is provided, uh, but how the mission is to be done uh, is not really dictated uh, by. Uh, by the politicians, which I, I can't, I can't really see that happening in Australia. And if I just think back, uh, even to our deployment to Afghanistan, uh, you know, we and many have said this. This is certainly nothing new. But we basically, because of political sensitivities, uh, we employed special forces ultimately to do the role of uh, what our basic infantry is trained to do, um, because we didn't have the political stomach uh, to have 
infantry soldiers die. Uh, but if it's a special forces soldier that dies, well, they were doing special high risk stuff. And, you know, generally we're, we're more uh, accepting of that. Um, how do you feel about that? Is that is that again something that's rather peculiar to Sweden? Well, we have to keep in mind that the, the Swedish politicians uh, during the Bosnia mission they uh, uh, they tried to micromanage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they they basically tried to do what the Dutch did do uh, because they they didn't really have the stomach for this kind of thing either. Uh, like no, I mean, I mean nobody did uh, mm. in mm. Europe at the time. Um, except the Brits were a bit more tough, but yeah, most of the other ones, not, not so much. Um, so they tried to micromanage and, and the battalion commander, he, 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 he basically interpreted this as they have given me a mission. Uh, so that's what I'm going to do. He didn't make up the mission on his own. They gave me a mission and this is the mission I'm going to, uh, to work towards. Uh, but if they try to micromanage me, uh, I'm, I'm not going to listen to that. Because that's also the Swedish military tradition is that you get a mission and then you're left to your own devices to to do what you need to do. Mm. So when the Swedish Swedish government tried to uh, uh, issue or orders or micromanage, he would tell the radio operator that the radio is is now out of order for how many hours I need. Mm. And then uh, uh, after five hours, the radio will be back in order and then you will notify Stockholm of what I have decided and what I have done. And mm. then... They will know. But if they try to tell me what to do, the radio will mysteriously cease to function again. Uh, mm, yeah. So this is kind of the game he played. Um, because that, and that's also, I mean, that's part of how Swedish uh, mission command is, that if, if someone gives you an order and you think it's wrong because it will not help you accomplish your mission objectives, then you should, you should uh, ignore that order. You, should, mm. you, you can break that order. That's fine. Uh, mm. And then you will be held responsible, of course, uh, for the yeah. outcome. But it's it's fine. It's expected to break orders if they if you, as the person, the commander on location, thinks that this this will be detrimental to my to the achievement of my mission objectives. Mm. Mm. And you should disregard that order. I mean, it's extraordinarily trusting also in your subordinates that they are trained enough, that they are intelligent enough, that they understand enough. Uh, and 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 of course, Nordbat too was famously. You know, largely, you know, again, ex-conscript volunteers. Yeah. Um, so, to what extent do you think that had anything to do with, or or does that have anything to do with uh, the kind of Swedish mentality that you know these aren't necessarily quote unquote professional soldiers, and, and I do want to get to that, um, but rather, you know, well, conscripts who then volunteered uh, to join the full-time uh, military. So they m- most of them arguably had another life. Uh, did something oh, else yeah. previously, yep. had a completely different profession. Uh, uh, and again, I use that term specifically because I do want to get to uh, this definition. Um, to, to what extent do you think that had a, or has even now an impact on, on, on the mindset of the Swedish military? Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's more a matter of, to some extent, there, there's some influence here of, of like Swedish, I think of Swedish, like high trust society. Mm. Uh, but it's more than that. Uh, it's also this element of, of responsibility that it, it's, I trust you to act, but it's also, you are also responsible mm. both for your actions and to make sure that you do act. Because if you do not act, I will hold you responsible as well. Mm. So you need to act because like I said, doing nothing is the most inexcusable sin. Doing, mm. If you make a mistake, fine, we'll forgive you. But mm. it's we, we can't forgive you for doing nothing. Uh, 
Mm, mm, mm. Um, so so that 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 was part of it. Uh, and uh, I think th- this this kind of culture uh, really entrenched itself. I think during the late last decades of the Cold War in Sweden. Mm. So by the nineties, I think it was like at at its peak, probably the most like purely refined version of this existed. So it was kind of a strange coincidence that this is exactly when when mm. Nordbat was deployed. And then you know with the where, uh, as as we moved past, uh, so if we look at, look at it today, there's this this debate going on in Swedish military circles about how good are we actually at mission command, or are we just talking about mission command as if we're we're still this good at it? Or but I mean the there's a, the organization is much smaller. We have these more like you know contemporary management systems that every kind mm. of large organization has today um, that and we have more like networked sensors and and higher situational awareness for higher ranking commanders and all i think there's there's been this debate that all these things may actually go against the spirit of mission command which is mm. not to interfere but the more you know as a senior commander the more tempted you might be to start to interfere which mm. is what you're not supposed to do and they say that so um, I mean the debate is is kind of raging and and some people think that we are not as good at mission command as we were back then because mm-hmm. it, we have allowed it to like be, become more diluted and some think that we're pre- probably still pretty good at it but at least there's a there's a debate I mean there's yeah. an expectation we we have, I think we have an expectation of ourselves to be good at this because it's such a such an important part of our tradition mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's it's difficult to say because of course we have. Units now that have they have served in Afghanistan, they have served in all kinds of places uh, in Africa as well, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, been engaged in, in combat operations and such, uh, and, and expecting that as well. So I think that we still have small unit, very capable small units, uh, fully capable of mission command. But I think maybe that this really uh this this kind of mission command culture that we had in the 90s that went all the way to the top so even people at the very highest levels of command were completely in uh, completely like saturated with mm. mission command and, mm. and really mm. willing to accept so you had like the the head of the Swedish army told the battalion commander that this is your show and you'll run it as as you see fit mm. and mm. I'll mm. and I'll back you up and I'm I'm not sure that we have that kind of uh, mission command anymore uh, right, right of course now. kind of hard to tell yeah well hopefully we don't need to find out anytime soon uh, no, uh, g- given what's happening uh just east of you um but but i think it's important to also just highlight what you mean by sweden being a high trusting society i mean just you know personal anecdote with the pashore number uh you know the personal number in sweden which everybody you know and and i had and my partner had um, you know, through one personal number, you know, you can go and find out everything about the person, including where they live, what their phone number is. You can get a bracket of their income. Um, you know, through that Pashur number, you order everything. You know, I remember moving into a new apartment, uh, under a hand, of course, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, the, the rental system in Sweden is confusing to say the least. Uh, but, you know, you use your personal number to uh, go and get internet, and the next day you get you know just uh, a, a package in the in the mail with your modem, and you know it's all up and running. The billing system's working against your personal number, regardless of your address. Uh, you know, it's an exceptionally efficient system, exceptionally efficient. But if you mentioned to people in Australia that 
here's my personal number through which you can find out everything about me, including my address, my salary, my phone number, uh, you know, family members, uh, where I work, what type of work I do. Uh, people will freak out uh, because, you know, of various privacy concerns and, and the narrative that exi- or the culture that exists uh, around trust. And, of course, famously, we've seen it as, as well with, uh, with COVID, uh, where, you know, Swedes... Uh, went the other way to the rest of the world. Uh, it was uh, rather rather loose um, rules and restrictions, uh, or restrictions, I should say, uh, on it. And I think that's a that's an important piece, again, of this culture within which the military is a subculture, within which Nordbat is another subculture uh, that, of course, found itself in circumstances uh, uh, of Bosnia, which uh, was, yeah, I mean, and, and, of course, within Bosnia, Swedes uh, are, are really held in, in in kind of a legendary esteem uh, because of uh, their behaviour uh, dur- during the deployment. Um, an important question, I think, for, I guess, militaries uh, uh, broadly is what are the conditions necessary, in your view and based on your research, for successful mission command? Well, I think uh, if, if you want to achieve like this kind of 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 mission command, pure pure kind of mission command. You first, of course, like you said, you need trust. Uh, I'm not sure you need. Uh, I'm not sure you actually need a high trust society, but mm. you need to have a, a high trust organization. And I say that because, of course, the most paradoxical and and, and strange uh, example of, and the original example of of mission command is from from Germany, from Nazi Germany. And that was, I think, not not a high-trust society mm, mm, mm. Uh, and not one that really uh, allowed for much individualism or, or you know, in, in individual initiative and stuff like that. But somehow it, it did work in the military context because the military organization was simply different. So you need to, you need to have a military organization that, that allows, that, that has that kind of trust, that it trusts subordinates to, to do the right thing. Uh, but also tells them that they need to do the right thing. They need to act. That being passive is not an option. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, so they, there's two sides of the coin. You, have, you give them the freedom to act, but you also demand that they do use that freedom to act. Mm, mm. Uh, and that you are held responsible for everything you do, but you will be forgiven if you, uh, I mean, within reason, uh, you will be forgiven for doing the wrong thing as long mm. as you try to do the right thing. Mm, mm. Um and also, I think simple orders. The uh, avoid the temptation of micromanagement. And I, I, I sometimes I, I think it's fascinating to see uh, uh, American things, like American orders, American manuals, American things. They are so verbose and, and and extremely detailed. And then you have like a Swedish manual. Sometimes I look at, or like Swedish, uh, the kind of thing you would give to a soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. We have like hand hand drawn figures of of people doing things, and then you have like a few pages, and that's it. Mm, uh, mm, try and mm. really keep it simple because they will they will figure out the rest. You don't have to tell them exactly everything, every detail. It's better mm. not to. Mm. And and orders keep them. They should be as simple as possible. Tell them what you want and and let them do it. Mm, uh, mm. And n- don't try to micromanage. And uh, and that goes for everyone. Uh, no mm. one should try to micromanage anyone. Just give them as much autonomy as possible and do it. You have to do it to people uh, who are very junior as well, because as they uh, advance through through the ranks, they should have this mindset already ingrained in them. Because mm. you can't have you can't micromanage them when they're like second lieutenants and something, and then expect them to become completely independent by the time they're majors. Because uh, then shifting is is difficult. If mm. but if you 
if you if they have this mindset from the very start, then that that's all they know. That's that they're going to be completely, yeah, uh, completely saturated with this kind of thinking. Mm. Interestingly, now you teach an intelligence course and you teach intelligence analysis, uh, which of course is is a is a hugely important piece of the military machine, uh, and of course within intelligence organizations there are subcultures. Now, of course, those subcultures uh, dictate how information is turned into intelligence, which, at least in theory, should be driving operations um, uh, 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 and therefore has a huge impact on the battle space. So one of the things that that uh, I think you try to do in your courses uh, is to make your students, who are both civilian and military, if I'm correct, you try to make them aware of groupthink uh, and bias, which, of course, is a product, a direct product of a subculture. Now, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? And then we can maybe just just touch on uh, how to how, how to improve military intelligence analysis or how do you try to what are some of the principles you try to uh, uh, inculcate in your students? Yeah, so I have a lot of uh, I have mostly civilian students here at the university, and then I also uh, visit uh, some of our government agencies to train their intelligence analysts, uh, mostly law enforcement people. Uh, but I also meet the military sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the thing is, bias is is a very difficult thing to teach people about because. Yeah, it, it, it's something that has a lot of negative connotations, of course. Mm. Um, but it's not something that you can get rid of. Uh, it's also something that is uh, inevitable. Mm. And you have ine- you have individual biases. Some things are just you know, these uh, these psychological basic mechanisms that everyone has, and they can have different impacts at different situations. And then you have group level things like organizational cultures and groupthink and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what I, I what I try to teach everyone, students and practitioners alike, is that first of all you should know that this this thing exists and mm. and be on the lookout for it. And the second thing you should know is that you can't get rid of it. Uh, I can't get rid of it. I I, I of mm. course will still be uh, impacted by bias, uh, no matter how much I know about it, because you can't mm. get rid of it. Mm. Uh, however, what you can do is try to build uh, organizational structures and procedures to at least mitigate the impact of bias and prevent things like groupthink and destructive or uh, inefficient cultures. So, for example, you can have, you can have structured methods uh, mm-hmm. and uh, structured analytical methods, for example. Uh, they're not like going to fix everything mag- magically for you, but they can help you to some extent under, in, in certain scenarios. Uh, to at least reduce the impact of bias by making things more transparent, if nothing else, that that you you can see how people are thinking and and you can scrutinize that uh, mm. critically. Um, but then you can also have things like devil's advocate functions, where some uh, people are appointed specifically to argue the the contrarian perspective, mm. uh, and then you have to be able to to provide reasonably good answers to their contrarian uh, questions and perspectives. Um, and you also have to be mindful of, 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 of group dynamics and organizational dynamics. This, this especially applies to managers and people or mm. supervisors, people like that. You have to be mindful of uh, what kind of group am I running here? What kind of uh, norms uh, are, are in operation here? Mm. And how, mm. 
what kind of roles are people filling? And sometimes I run these exercises and I tell tell my my students or practitioners that here's a task uh, and they work on the task and what they don't know is that I'm observing their, their groups as they mm. work. And then they come back to report the task and I tell them, I don't care about the task, but here's what I noticed about your group. And here's something you should think about for the future. Uh, when did you speak up? Why didn't you speak up? Uh, mm. Did you try to... Uh, did you try to reach consensus? Did you tar- try to compromise? Did you actually suggest something you don't believe is the correct uh, conclusion? Because mm. it's easier to to reach an agreement on that. Mm. And if so, what kind of consequences can you expect? So I, I try to teach them basically awareness and and a few different kind of structured methods and stru- structures yeah. and procedures that you can do to, to at least mitigate the impact of bias. But I think that awareness is uh, awareness and structure that those are the th- two kinds of basic tools we can use to, to yeah. reduce the impact bias. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it, it, all of these tools exist, uh, you know, whether it be in planning or intelligence analysis or anything. I mean, it's, a you know, th- th- these have been forged over, in some cases, centuries of, of knowledge and understanding. Uh, but it amazes me how often we, we forget them or, um, and maybe the stress uh, of a situation uh, make, makes us uh, forget them. Uh, which is which is a really interesting piece, and I think that's where you know we talked about before the, the importance of training and actually you know following the processes that you have without being rigid uh, uh, and a slave to the process, but understanding that each of these processes have been developed uh, for a reason to really try and shine a light on some of the vulnerabilities, um, uh, 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 you know, in your own thinking. Uh, which, yeah, like you said, bias. We might not be even aware of it, but and but we cannot escape it. It's always there. Uh, and maybe my last uh, la- last last pivot uh, and last uh, question I have uh, is on this idea of professionalism. Uh, and I know you've written uh, uh, quite a lot uh, about the military or a military professional uh, being almost a myth, uh, or the idea of being a professional or a pro- or, or, or a prof- uh, professional trade, for lack of a better word. What do you mean by that? And 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 what is your what is your concern with the idea of a professional uh, uh, soldier? Let's say. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think sometimes uh, I, I get the impression, uh, looking in from the outside, that when people in professional military education talk about the professional ideal, what they really want to say is this is this is what is good, and we should be good at what mm-hmm. we do. Uh, but I think that there are ramifications here that we need to think about. And uh, one of these things is that one of these things I've been arguing for for years now is that, in my uh, view, the traditional professions, uh, like the traditional professions, are usually listed as doctor, uh, lawyer, clergy, and engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if we just focus on, for example, a doctor, I, th- I I take the position that being a doctor is in many ways much, much easier than being a military leader, even mm. a military, even a junior military leader. Mm. Uh, and if not easier, then at least different. Uh, because sure, it takes a lot of, of knowledge and a lot of, of uh, 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 analytical skills and, and common sense and, and ethics and all these things to be a doctor, sure. Mm. But a doctor does not have an enemy that is trying to kill the doctor uh, uh, actively and an enemy that doesn't care about any rules. Uh, And the doctor doesn't need to think about strategy. The doctor Mm. doesn't have a strategic goal that may shift and change. Mm. 
Uh, and and so it, with all this, I mean, I have the greatest respect for doctors, of course, but I think mm. that what they do is too different. Mm. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's a useful thing to compare yourself against and try to emulate because mm. I think mm. you, the risk is that you will lose some of this complexity that comes with military leadership. Mm. And that mm. is two, two things. The first thing is the antagonist. You have an enemy who will try to identify your weak points. Uh, and this enemy is relentless. The enemy is always studying you. You have to, uh, at least you have to take that as, as an assumption because, I mean, if the enemy doesn't, then uh, yeah, it will be easier for you. But mm. you have to ex- expect the worst case scenario. And that is that the enemy is constantly studying you, constantly looking for your weaknesses, your predictabilities. Uh, and if you start to behave in a predictable way, the enemy will exploit it. And the enemy doesn't care for rules, doesn't mm. care for, for uh, international law, doesn't care for the Geneva Conventions. Yeah. You have to expect that the enemy will do anything the enemy is able to just to inflict damage on you. Mm. And this this is not something traditional professions have to deal with. And the other is a strategy. Strategy is like a very difficult thing. So, I mean, for the, for example, in the U.S., we're fighting in, in Vietnam. People, uh, U.S. military decision makers would complain that we're not allowed to bomb uh, targets uh, in uh, on the other side of this border, for example. No, you're not because that's a strategic limit. Uh, mm. The war does not fight itself uh, uh, separate from from political gains. I mm. mean, that's what that's what Clausewitz t- has, mm. has taught us mm. a long time mm. ago. Mm. That, like it or not, this is this is the way the game is played, and you have to accept that because war is ultimately strategy, and strategy is ultimately politics, and mm. you mm. operate within this political world, and that is also something that traditional professionals don't need to deal mm. with. Mm. But mm. it is something that intelligence professionals need to deal with. Mm. They also mm. frequently have an antagonist. They also frequently have this kind of uh, strange uh, strategic sphere uh, to to deal with. Although usually it's easier for intelligence professionals, I'd say they mm. they, they they don't have to cope with the, the same with, with the same range of, of of situations that a military leader does. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and I think the the, the important piece is to highlight here is that you know in no way are you saying that you know that soldiers are below a professional. If anything, they're above from a kind of, there's more expected, which is the, you know, strategic corporal or the three block war. You know, they all kind of fall into this uh, uh, way, you know, on one block, you're a humanitarian and you have to adapt to the cultural setting or to, you know, providing food uh, around the corner, you might be fighting, uh, uh, you know, urban war, basically, uh, which requires all of these require different responses, different uh, mechanisms and an adjustment of of application of well violence ultimately, uh, which puts it outside of the realm of a profession uh, which has clear rules, uh, clear ethical norms, clear ethical guidelines, uh, and, and a membership of a particular group. Uh, some of which, of course, militaries have, uh, but but it goes a little bit beyond that. So then, my question to you is: uh, Are we asking too much of soldiers potentially, um, especially when we're talking about junior soldiers? Uh, who might not even, you know, who we're expecting to be, you know, cross-cultural experts, uh, you know, patrolling through the streets of Basra. Um, you know, we're expecting them to be able to manage sometimes century-long feuds uh, or, 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 you know, uh, ethnic ethnic rivalries that exist uh, well, uh, you know, beyond the current issue. Are we expecting too much? I don't think we are. I, th- I think that what Norbert too shows is that, High expectations 
can can yield amazing results. But if you have low expectations, then you can't expect much of anything. Actually, um, mm-hmm. I think the, the the Dutch battalion shows what happens when you have low expectations and and micromanage people. Yeah. But I think what you what you need to have re- uh, you need to have realistic expectations. So you need to you you can't expect the junior soldier to make the right decision every time, but you have to give the junior soldier the opportunity. To, to make the right decision. Mm, mm. have to provide them with, the, the, I mean, as good a tools as they can have uh, and as much knowledge as, as, they, can, as they can absorb. Uh, and then you have to give them the opportunity. And if they do make the wrong decision, just, I mean, with, again, within reason, mm. uh, try to forgive them and try to show them what they can do right next time. Uh, mm. And I think that that, that that would give you the most... Uh, the 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 mo- yeah, that will give you the most efficient kind of military organization, I think. Mm. But with low mm. expectations, really, you, you've set the limit from the start, and then you can't go beyond that. Yeah, you set the bar low. Uh, wonderful. And on that note, Tony, I think uh, it's probably a good way uh, to end the conversation uh, on a slightly optimistic tone. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I really think uh, this is this is this is a discussion that's close to my heart because of this idea of culture. Uh, and how much a culture can shape the behavior. Uh, and of course, how understanding and investing into building and nurturing a culture that uh, really embraces and embodies mission command, which allows the uh, troops on the ground to make their decision based on the circumstance on the ground. But of course, while equipping them, uh, not only with the right, uh, right physical equipment, but of course, the, the mental uh, equipment uh, and moral equipment uh, that, we can, uh, that we can infuse in them. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for your time. I think it was a really, really useful conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.